Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So uh, we're going to open up the doctrine of Christ, and I'm just going to really introduce this to you tonight. We're not going to cover all the details of this, obviously. At one level, the doctrine of Christ is the preeminent doctrine in all of Scripture. I mean, Jesus is what all of the Bible is all about. He's the central figure. He's described as God incarnate. He's described as the Word of God in John chapter 1. He's the one who came for our salvation. He's the one who's returning uh, at the end of time to bring about the reconciliation of all things, judgment on sinners and, and forgiveness and, and ultimate life to those that are a part of His family. I mean, He is the centerpiece of all of Scripture. In, in one sense, almost all of the doctrines that we are going to talk about or have talked about and are going to talk about touch on the doctrine of Christ. In one sense, we need to talk about the doctrine of Christ in depth. And we're going to try to do that uh, at different points over the next several weeks and several months. However, on another end, because we talk about Jesus all the time in sermons and in studies, it's probably the doctrine that we, in some ways, need to dive into the least. And what I mean by that is, um, there are specifics that we're going to address, there are aspects we're going to address, but if you've been here for seven years, a lot of what I could share with you about the doctrine of Christ and will share with you, I've already shared with you. For example, every Christmas we talk about the virgin birth of Jesus, or nearly every Advent season. I'm going to repeat some of that. It's worth repeating. It needs to be repeated. Uh, my, my point being that Jesus is the centerpiece, and if he's not, then you need to find a different church. Okay? Churches that don't major on Jesus are not doing their job as a church. We're going to do our best to major on Jesus in our music, in our preaching, in our teaching, in our Sunday school classes. And so that's the doctrine of Jesus. Primarily, I would say this, Jesus was not an afterthought in God's redemptive plan. He is God's forethought. Jesus isn't the person that God sent when the first plan didn't work. He is who God is sent in order to initiate all of the work and all of the plans that, that he had made. And I'm going to show you some scripture verses that highlight that. Let me give you the outline in front of you, the, the uh, doctrine of Christ. There's the doctrine of Christ, Christology proper. We're going to look at the humanity of Jesus. That should be the first blank. We're going to look at the deity of Jesus uh, over the course of the next few weeks. So Jesus is fully human. He's also fully God. And the particular doctrine that we're going to look at, and we, we will touch on it tonight, but dive into it in weeks to come, is the doctrine of the Incarnation. It's the preeminent doctrine when it comes to the person of Jesus. So we're going to look at Jesus' person, and we're going to look at Jesus' work. So who is Jesus? Uh, Pastor Tad asked that question when he baptizes. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. And specifically and doctrinally, He is God enfleshed, God incarnate. So we're going to talk about the person of Christ, and we're also going to talk about the work of Christ. And I don't have... Let me see that handout for a second. I've got, diff, I've got a different set of notes. So we're going to talk about the work of Christ. We're going to talk about His role as prophet. That's the first blank. We're going to talk about His role as priest. We're going to talk about His role as king. 
So prophet, priest, and king. And then the key event in Jesus' work, there are two events. There's the crucifixion and the resurrection. And all of Jesus' person, who he is, and his work, touches into other doctrines. For example, it touches into the doctrine of salvation. So Jesus' atoning work, and we'll talk about that in the doctrine of Christ, that overlaps with what we could talk about in the doctrine of salvation for with particular regard to the atonement and many other aspects of salvation as well. So they're integrated. Let me give you some verses that talk about Jesus being God's forethought. He was the plan from the beginning. How about this one in John 17, 24? Jesus prayed this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God the Father was loving God the Son, was loving God the Spirit before the world ever began. I'll give you another one, Ephesians 1.4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, we're not in the doctrine of salvation, and we'll talk about predestination, election, and foreknowledge when we get to that particular time of, of uh, the doctrine of salvation. I just want you to get this. God's plan of salvation in the fact that Jesus was going to die on the cross and be raised from the dead, that wasn't God's plan B after the law didn't work. That was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. His saving work is something He has been working to accomplish through Jesus from eternity past. So it means that the, the, what Jesus did coming into the world, who He is and what He did in saving us, is God's specific plan and only plan for saving anyone. 1 Peter 1, in verse 20 and 21, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Foreknown before the foundation of the world, made known to us. How about this in Revelation 13? It was allowed, uh, also, the, the enemy was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name is not, get this, this is some good eschatology here. Everyone whose name has not been written, written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. My son, my oldest son, when he came to know Jesus, we were doing a, a children's Bible, and we got to the end of the book of Revelation, which is typical for him to get to the end of something. And he got to the end, and we were reading about the Lamb's Book of Life, and he said, I want my name in that book. That's what he said. That's, that's how he came to know Jesus. And we talked to him about it, and he trusted Jesus to be his Savior that night. I just want you to know uh, that according to the book of Revelation, those of you that are redeemed, your name was written in that book. Before the foundation of the world. Meaning God knew some things. Knew everything. Before the foundation of the world began. It's a beautiful affirmation of God's planned work of salvation in our lives. Now I realize that's got some factors that we have to work out. How do we make sense of that? In terms of when, for example, Steve told us tonight when he came to faith in Jesus. I shared a little bit of my testimony Sunday in my sermon when I came to faith in Jesus but God's plan of salvation is something He's accomplished from before the foundation of the world. That means Jesus is the specific expectation of God. So here's, uh, here's the question for tonight. How about the question of virgin conception? Uh, what do we mean? We use terminology like the virgin birth. 
really it should be virgin conception. That's the, the, the miraculous claim. And there are all sorts of scriptures that affirm this. You could go all the way back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah said, uh, or prophesied, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Some have said over the years that that word virgin could be translated a young maiden or young girl. Uh, and, and it could be. That's one way to translate that. But when you read what, how Matthew quoted that and how also the angel quoted that to Mary in the book of Luke and the book of Matthew, one of the things that's very clear is the New Testament authors understood there to be something gloriously unique about Jesus' birth. It wasn't like every other birth. It wasn't normal. It wasn't typical. For example, in Matthew 1, um, the angel said to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, Matthew understood the prophecy of Isaiah to reflect that this is going to be a unique birth. In other words, this isn't going to be a normal conception. This is going to be miraculous. The Holy Spirit's going to have a a role in this. And this is not going to be your typical child who was born, nor your typical means of birth. Mary had the same question in Luke chapter 1. The angel said, Mary, you're favored and you're going to have the Messiah. Imagine being a 14-year-old girl and an angel announcing himself to you and saying, you're about to be the mother of God. I mean, you can imagine that. And her question was a very practical one. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? I don't have to explain the birds and the bees to y'all. We're not in middle school. Uh, But we get it. How can this be? The angel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the picture of the, both the New and the Old Testament is this affirmation that there will be a miraculous conception, something unique in the annals of human history. And by the way, this is one of the, the, the particular uh, doctrinal claims that has been around for ages. This isn't a new idea. This isn't something that we came up with in the 21st century to try to make Christianity unique. No, if you go all the way back to the creeds and the claims of ancient Christian history, the virgin birth or the virgin affirmation of Mary's uh, giving birth to Jesus is all over those creeds. For example, if you look in front of you, the first creed that's there, the first creedal statement there is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. By the way, I got those creedal statements from this fascinating little book called Be Thou My Vision. Dustin's aware of this. When we were at the worship conference uh, a number of months ago, this is a devotional book that uh, essentially follows a liturgical pattern in private worship. So in our, in our church, we have a, a time for adoration and for confession, adoration and praise and for confession. We also have a time for testimony, affirmation of what we believe, uh, we have a time for instruction from God's Word. And so we follow a particular pattern in our worship service. And what um, the author of this book did is he built this pattern into his own personal devotional life. 
And one of the things that I love about it is through, you know, day by day as we're reading, he goes through the creeds. And you read through the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. And the benefit of that is you're affirming what the church has believed for 2,000 years. You're just rereading it and reaffirming it doctrinally. It's a beautiful way to do your devotions. If you're interested in that, see Dustin or see me afterward and you can get a copy of this. It's a beautiful way to do your own personal devotional time. Uh, The Apostles' Creed acknowledges Jesus being conceived of the Virgin Mary. The Nicene Creed, which goes all the way back to AD 320s, when the affirmation, the church, the bishops gathered. We'll talk about this as we look at, one of the things we'll look at uh, either next week or the week after, is we'll look at uh, the particular Christological heresies. Uh, how How did the church... Uh, get frustrated, or not frustrated, how do they have to deal with heretical claims about Jesus? And the Council of Nicaea was the place where the deity and the humanity, the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus was affirmed, and that happened in AD 325. And so the Nicene Creed came as a result of that. And the Nicene Creed, it's one Lord Jesus Christ, incarnate by the Holy Spirit uh, of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. You go to the Athanasian Creed. Athanasius was one of the church fathers who uh, explained and argued for the deity of Jesus. He argued for that against one of the early heretics, uh, one of the uh, Arius who was a, a heretic who did not believe that Jesus was fully man. Athanasius, in the creed that he penned, said this, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is God's Son. He's both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. He is man from the essence of His mother, born in time, equally God, completely man, with a rational soul and a human flesh. And so these are affirmations that the church has made for ages in our own Baptist faith and message. Uh, Steve referenced that in his testimony, something that I believe you can get if, I think we have it linked on our website. If we don't, it's easy to Google Baptist Faith and Message, or we can get some copies here. In the Baptist Faith and Message, the claim is that Christ is the eternal Son of God, his incarnation as Jesus Christ, is that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Obviously, by the way, that is a miraculous reality, right? I mean, virgins do not give birth. That doesn't happen in human history. C.S. Lewis um, C.S. Lewis argued this. He said, but of course, those things do not concern the main point. That a virgin birth is contrary to the course of nature. It is. St. Joseph obviously knew that. In any sense in which it is true to say, now the thing is scientifically impossible, Joseph would have said the same. The thing always was and was always known to be impossible unless the regular processes of nature were, in this particular case, being overruled or supplemented by something from beyond nature. And Joseph finally accepted the view that his fiancée's pregnancy was due not to unchastity, but to a miracle. He accepted the miracle as something contrary to the known order of nature. All records of this miracle teach the same thing. In such stories, the miracles excite fear and wonder. This is what the very very word miracle implies among the spectators and are taken of as evidence of supernatural power. They were not known to be contrary to the laws of nature. How could they suggest the presence of the supernatural? How could they be surprising unless they were seen to be exceptions to the rules? 
And how can anything be seen to be an exception to the rules until they are known? If there ever were men who did not know the laws of nature at all, they would have no idea of a miracle and feel no particular interest in one if it were performed before them. Nothing can seem extraordinary until you have discovered what is ordinary. Lewis continues, Belief in miracles, far from depending on an ignorance of the laws of nature, is only possible insofar as those laws are known. We've already seen that if you begin by ruling out the supernatural, you will perceive no miracles. We must now add that you will equally perceive no miracles until you believe that nature works according to regular laws. If you have not yet noticed that the sun always rises in the east, you will see nothing miraculous about his rising one morning in the west. Lewis is fascinating. It's his uh, wonderful book on miracles. His point is simply this. Yes, the virgin birth is a miracle. Okay? It's not something that happens normally, typically, or has really ever happened before or since. It hasn't. And that we claim that there is a virgin birth makes us, uh, sometimes, some people would make us out to be loonies. How can you believe that a virgin gave birth to a child? Well, we believe that God spoke the world into existence out of nothing. He created the world out of nothing. He's capable of doing whatever He wants with His creation. That's why we call it a miracle. Okay? Now, here's why this really matters. I've read this quote before uh, in a sermon I preached a number of years ago. It's on the page in front of you. It's from John Phillips. The virgin birth of Christ is not an optional article of faith. This is why the virgin birth matters. It is essential to the gospel. If Jesus was not virgin born, then he had a human father. If he had a human father, he was not God. If he was not God, the Bible is false. Jesus himself was deluded, and we have no adequate Savior from sin. Jesus was not God manifest in the flesh. The life that was surrendered on the cross was only a human life and could never have taken away the sin of the world. As a man, he could only have given a life for a life. But as God, he laid down an infinite life that was more than sufficient to redeem any number of finite lives. What the early church recognized, it's what we have to recognize today. If you give up the virgin birth, you might as well go join a cult. Or quit Christianity. Go be an atheist. Go find somebody, someplace else to go and be. You don't have salvation if you don't have God who was born into human existence and a God who died on the cross to bring sinners to salvation. Incidentally, one of the things that, that struck C.S. Lewis in his conversion was the whole idea of the God-dying myth. That, that's not abnormal. There have been myths all throughout human history, religious history, uh, kind of mythological history where gods died. Uh, and one of the things that struck Lewis or that really challenged Lewis before he came to faith was that he just perceived of Jesus dying as another God myth or God dying myth. But here's what Lewis came to realize after coming to faith in Jesus. It is mythological, but it's the only true myth. Because what we want in a myth is we want someone to rescue us. We want someone to do what we can't do. We want someone to fix our problems. That's why you have all of these God myths throughout all of human history. It's why we have idolatries and other, worship, other religious systems. What Lewis came to recognize is that the Bible teaches the only true myth. 
that yes, Jesus did come in human history at a date, at a time, at a place. He lived, he walked, he was God in human flesh. He died on a cross and he died on the cross but didn't stay there. He rose from the dead and that gives us the opportunity to have salvation. And one of the things that that we need to realize is unless we have God who is virgin born in the person of Jesus Christ, we do not have salvation. That's a very short introduction into the doctrine of Christ. We'll come back and talk about his humanity, what the Bible teaches about that, talk about his deity and some other aspects in the coming weeks. Let me give you this final takeaway. Just a reminder, Jesus is not plan B. He is God's plan only. I'll say this uh, final story and we'll be done. I was serving at a different church a number of years ago and uh, we had a chaplain from a football team come and preach on one of our Wednesday nights. And uh, he preached a sermon where he talked about Jesus being God's plan B. Talked about the fact that the law was there and if you obeyed the law you could get to heaven and be good enough, and Jesus was God's plan B for salvation. Uh, I respectfully disagreed then, and I vehemently disagree with that today. If it were humanly possible for you to be perfect, uh, if you could, from this moment forward, obey the law without our perfection, as some kind of you know, theologians have said over the years, the doctrine of perfectionism, which we'll get into a little bit when we talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. If it were possible, that would be fantastic. But what are you going to do about the things you've done wrong already in your life? Uh, We can't be perfect enough to earn our way into God's heaven. Which is why the Bible teaches that Jesus, before the foundation of the world, was God's plan to save us. The hope of that, folks, is simply this. If that was God's plan from before eternity began, do you really think God's going to lose hold of you today? Do you really think that anything you're facing, dealing with, death, sickness, illness, disease, suffering, whatever, do you really think any of that is going to get in the way of God's orchestration of the events of salvation 2,000 years ago? And what he did to bring you to salvation at whatever point in your spiritual past you came to faith? Not at all, folks. Jesus is God's plan for salvation. He is our Savior. He's someone we can count on. And folks, that helps me sleep at night, rest easy, not fret and worry because I know he's my Savior. He's got me and he's got you. Can I get an amen? Amen. We'll see you Sunday at worship. Uh, Thank you for being here, Steve. Thanks again for your testimony for being willing to serve us in this capacity. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.